You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, for this sermon, uh, I want to move in four different uh, directions. First, I want us to go into the passage, into the Bible, so outside of ourselves, into the Word, and make a few observations about what we see here. And then I want us to kind of turn back inward and identify what I suspect is a discomfort that many of us will feel about what we see here. And then I want us to look to the past to attempt to resolve some of that discomfort or clarify it. And then I'm going to close with a few exhortations for us as a church moving forward. So into the text, into the heart, into the past, into the future. That's the four kind of movements that we're going to go through as we work through this passage. And one of the difficulties uh, that I had in preparing the sermon is that chapter breaks in our modern English Bibles don't always track with the actual structure of the letter, and this is a good example of that. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 actually belong with what came before. They're, They're a part of this earlier section about Paul's instructions for the church, about the church as a family, the care of widows, honoring of uh, pastors, due process when people are accused of sins. Um, That all goes with the bit about bondservants. And then there's this transition, teach and urge these things. That's a a, a marker in the letter. Paul does it a number of times. Chapter 4, verse 11 is a previous one where he transitions and then he discusses these false teachers once again. He's discussed them in chapter 1, discussed them again in chapter 4, and now here he comes back to them in chapter 6. And Paul has been urging Timothy to put God's house in order, and the main way that he's going to do this is by teaching and exhortation and urging. Timothy should teach Paul's doctrine, the, the sound words of Christ, as well as the teaching that accords with godliness, which is a key word in the letter. So there's this kind of doctrinal content to what Timothy is to teach, and then there's this ethical content, a way to live. False teachers in this context, and if Ephesus, are rejecting both, and Paul identifies why. They're arrogant, puffed up, and ignorant without understanding. They they love controversy. They love to fight about words and to quarrel about meanings and these controversies don't press toward unity and maturity like we actually want to get together, but instead they tear the body apart and they produce envy and dissension and slander and suspicion because think about a church like this where you have different leaders in the church perhaps who are thinking different things and sowing discord and everybody begins to wonder whose side who is who on. Where does everybody stand? So there's this suspicion that sets in and a constant friction that begins with the false teachers and then spreads to the whole congregation. Now, in this case, in, in Ephesus in the first century, the false teachers view godliness as a means of gain. So they think the ability to define and regulate what is true and false, what is good and evil, that's a way to gain wealth and prestige and status and fame and social advancement. And Paul says they're, they're after gain. They want godliness to be a means of gain, but he has a contrasting way of living. He rejects that motive in favor of godliness with contentment. Not with discontentment and craving, but with contentment. And that means recognizing, as the saying goes, right, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You, only, you can take out of this world what you brought into this world, which is nothing, right? No material possessions that you have. You didn't have any when you came in. You won't have any when you go. 
And he concludes the section with a warning about the desire or craving to be rich. And I want you to just notice in those last few verses there, beginning in about verse 9, how this progression goes in the warning about wealth. The desire to be rich leads to, second, a falling into temptation or a snare, that's a trap, into harmful desires. So like the desire to be rich becomes many desires for lots of different things because that's what money's for. It can get you lots of different things. And that leads many people, and I don't think he just means the greedy person, being plunged into ruin and destruction. So desire to be rich falls into a temptation or a trap with many desires. That leads to being plunged to ruin and destruction. And then that ruin and destruction includes abandoning the faith. He says, wandered away from the faith. And self-induced harm, piercing themselves with many pangs. It's a self-induced. It's you're, so, you're reaping what you have sown. So you get that progression. You desire to be rich. You fall into temptation. Many harmful desires emerge. That leads to ruin and destruction all over the place, and that ruin and destruction includes apostasy, falling away from the truth, and reaping what you've sown. I'm just, I want you to hear that that's here because we're going to come back to it. And at the heart of that warning is the famous phrase, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, or perhaps the love of money is the root of all evil. I'm not going to adjudicate that distinction. Um, there's an excellent article at Desiring God where John Piper wrestles with which is it, and I just commend that to you if you're curious. And that's the sort of ap- uh, word or phrase that has applications in all kinds of direction. So that's what's in the text, okay? And there's one more thing I want us to see, and that's going to get us the discomfort. The first two verses of the passage encourage slaves or bond servants, words doulos, to honor and respect their masters, whether they are Christians or not. And these types of passages are all, are all over the New Testament. Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, all over the Bible we have passages addressed to slaves and sometimes to masters, regulating and encouraging and exhorting them in various ways. And these types of passages are difficult for us for a variety of reasons. For starters... Modern, individualistic people have a difficult time with any notion of ownership, of being owned. We just, that's a totally different world from the world that we live in. We don't like it. We chafe. And that chafing, that that kind of, I don't like any notion of being owned, actually often extends to a little bit of a discomfort with the idea of God's ownership. Right? So if you think about your favorite metaphors or images for your relationship to God, I doubt that many of you are going to put master and slave at the top of your list. Like me, you prefer something like parent and child. God is my father. I am his son. I like that metaphor. That one resonates with me. But to think that God owns me, that I'm his property, both because he made me and because he bought me with the blood of Jesus. So everything is owned by God by creation, and Christians are doubly owned by God because he bought us with, for a price. Like, we like that verse. He bought me with a price. Yes, and he now owns you. 
It's not our favorite metaphor. We'll, we'll, we'll receive it, but we just kind of, just, just because we're modern people, we chafe. And the second reason we have a problem with these is because it's difficult for us to imagine what life is like in a slave society, which has been many societies in the history of the world. Or even, don't t- take full-on slavery out of the picture, just a significantly hierarchical society, like a medieval feudalism or something like that. Like, we don't, we have, we have a difficult time going, what was it like to be in a society like that? We just, our minds don't work that way. And so when we find a passage that's addressed to that situation, it's difficult for us. And so what we do, which is okay, is we try to keep the principle and change the context and we apply it to our modern situations. And so this passage is relevant for employers and employees, right? And that's okay. We'll talk to that about that in a minute. But the most central reason why these passages bother us is because of our particular history as Americans and the reality of race-based slavery in our particular past. Like living on this side of the Civil War, we wonder, how do we think about the fact that Paul does not simply urge Christian masters to free their slaves because the gospel sets us free? But instead, he encourages slaves to respect and honor and obey their masters. That makes us uncomfortable because we know that those types of verses were the ones that were left in the slave Bibles when the early Americans edited them. And so we wonder, like, what what does Paul, does the Bible approve of slavery? Is it okay with that? Is that an okay thing? That's a big question. I'm not going to adequately address it in one sermon. But I want us to make some progress on it. And I'm going to try to offer a way of understanding the Scripture and its historical application. That's going to take us into the past. And in what follows, I'm just going to give you some places where I'm I'm pulling from. I'm relying in particular on a number of resources, but two two in particular. There's a lecture by a, a guy named Peter Williams. He's a professor in England called Does the Bible Support Slavery? It's an audio thing. It's linked in the sermon, so once it's posted, you can go find it. So he has a a lecture called, Does the Bible Support Slavery? It's very helpful. And then the second is a book by Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist and historian, called For the Glory of God. And he has a chapter in there devoted to slavery, and not just slavery in the American sense, but um, in the Roman, like Roman slavery, and uh, Native American slavery, and African slavery, and Islamic slavery. So he kind of covers all the different, many different types of slavery, and talks about how the gospel impacted it. So that's where I'm coming from. You can go find it if you'd like. So let's explore the tension. Why doesn't Paul do what we want him to do and wish he had done when it comes to the question of slavery? Why doesn't he just tell masters, Christian masters, free your slaves? Now, one strategy for addressing that tension is what I'm going to call the dichotomy strategy. What it it is, I found this a lot when I was doing my sermon prep. It's where... Um, people will draw a sharp division between Greco-Roman slavery, which is what Paul's talking about, and New World slavery, meaning the slavery that existed both in America and in the Caribbean and in South America from the 14 and 1500s on. And so we say there's a to- they're totally different types of things. There's a big dichotomy, so what Paul's doing, and so here's how the argument runs. Greco-Roman slavery was more like indentured servitude in which someone would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. And often such people could eventually buy back their freedom if they worked long enough, right? You see something like this perhaps in 
Jacob and Laban, when Jacob labors for a period of time in order to, uh, and, his, and his, everything is, belongs to Laban, but he gets to keep some of it at the end and, and works for Rebecca, or Rachel, I should say. Um, often, such people could buy their freedom. And what's more, these bond servants had sometimes considerable prestige in Roman society. Like they could be doctors, Many doctors or civil servants or other high, higher uh, prestige professions were slaves, doulos. And in contrast to that, we, we would say New World slavery was racially based and it was brutal. And most slaves worked impossible hours in the fields, possessed little to no legal protections. And so what Paul is addressing here isn't the same sort of thing that was happening in Mississippi and Georgia and Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It's just not the same. And therefore, these verses have no bearing on our past and were misused by white slave owners in justifying their wickedness. That's one way of trying to resolve the tension we feel. Here's the problem that have with the dichotomy strategy, is that while it's true there were indentured servants in the Roman world, and some of them did purchase their freedom, that's not the only type of Roman slavery. In fact, slavery in the Roman Empire could be just as brutal as anything that occurred in the New World. In fact, you have to think about this. Slavery, Stark's really helpful in this, slavery has existed in almost every society in the history of the world. It's like a universal result of the fall. Greeks and Romans, however, were actually truly slave societies. And what what that means is a slave society is not just a society that has slaves, but it's one in which slaves were the dominant means of production. Like that's how most things were made and done, was through slave labor. And at various times, up to half, if not two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It's a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. Many slaves were taken captive in war. So Rome was a conquering people. They would capture them, and they would send them back to slave markets where 20,000 slaves a day would be processed and distributed throughout the empire. Other slaves did sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Others were born into slavery. Slaves were used in a variety of capacities. There were elite slaves, the doctors and civil servants and things like that. But many more were what we would call production slaves, meaning they worked in agriculture. They labored on Roman plantations called latifundia, and they would, they're, they're really large plantations, and they would work in the fields and, and uh, produce the agriculture for the society. Or in the mines, that's a huge one. And the mines were probably the most brutal form of Roman slavery because slaves were kept at their labor with whip and chains and often died in torment. Or in construction, those big monuments that we celebrate, the wonders of the world, were often built by slave labor. Other slaves were consumption slaves, so actors, entertainers, musicians, concubines, gladiators, all of those are slaves in the Roman world. Others were domestic slaves, cooking, cleaning, looking after children, educating, aiding in the functioning of a household. And in fact, at various times, Stark says, it's thought that every household in Rome or every household in Athens earlier had slaves. There's slave societies. Legal protections during these times varied. At different times, there's more, different times, less. But at a basic level, a master owned his slave, had the right to punish and even kill his slaves. He could direct their behavior and transfer ownership to someone else. 
slavery. There were laws about freeing slaves. Because of a fear of social disruption, you couldn't just decide to free all your slaves. There were actual laws that said when you free them, you may, if you have this many, if you have 10 slaves, you can only free, free three at a time. And you got to wait because they didn't want the massive social disorder that would result if they just freed them all. So there were laws on the books about that. Um, the slave system was philosophically justified. Aristotle, in his famous book, Politics, argued that there are some people who are naturally only fit for slavery and that, therefore, it is just and right to enslave such persons. They are tools. Slaves are tools, he says, who belong to their masters. And Cato the Elder, who's like the George Washington of Rome, like one of the founding fathers, there's a famous story about him. He was a, very, he was a good master as masters go, and he's held up that way. But he had this slave who had served with him his entire life. And when the slave was old and worn out, he was, Cato's praising him and then discards him the way he would an old tool. Just says, yep, and then I sold him off and got rid of him and he died. So the fact that he'd served him his whole life, well, he was just my tool. I used him up and then I threw him away. That was the kind of attitude present. And it's important because while some pagan philosophies in the ancient world actually did try to humanize slaves, Many people viewed slavery as a natural, normal institution and thus treated slaves like the tools for use by their masters. So in light of that, I don't think that we can draw a sharp dichotomy between a supposedly gentle or benign form of indentured servitude in Rome and the brutality of new world slavery. It's just not going to, the evidence isn't there to do that. Greco-Roman slavery could be absolutely brutal. And now maybe we could say, there, there is a, I did have a thought as I was preparing, maybe Paul is only addressing domestic-type slaves in a particular context, but we have no, there's no textual thing for that. You, that would be something you'd have to just conclude on your own. And so what does Paul say here? In these verses, we have two situations. We have a slave with an unbelieving master, that's verse 1, a slave with a believing master. Those who are under the yoke as bondservants, the language of yoke indicates the hardship. It's like, it's oxen language. It's, that's what it's talking about, right? So you're under the yoke like an oxen. That's, that's what slaves were. Should treat their masters with all honor so that God's name and the teaching or the gospel might not be reviled. So the gospel, think about this, what's happening. Gospel comes into Rome, <clears throat> into Ephesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, including slaves. It's preached to everybody. Some slaves believe they have unbelieving masters. How should they regard the fact that they now have a master, a God, a Lord in heaven who is there? Should they then respect Jesus and disrespect their earthly master? That's the potential situation. And Paul says, no. Don't treat your master with contempt. It will reflect badly on the gospel. God's name will be reviled. In other words... Paul is running with the same approach to society that he <clears throat> brought up in 1 Timothy 2 when he says Christians should live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. He's saying that this is a practical outworking of that idea. Showing honor to one's master, even an unbeliever, honors God, commends the gospel. And this is the same kind of logic that he uses in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6 and in Titus 2 and the other passages like this. And this includes, in the New Testament, even masters who are treating you badly. Right? First Peter says, whether your master is just or unjust, whether he punishes you rightly or not, honor him. 
Now, what about a Christian master? What does Paul say there? Well, his counsel doesn't change. The fact that you're brothers doesn't mean you can be disrespectful. Instead, you ought to be more faithful, more respectful, more diligent in your work to for a Christian master because he's a Christian and you love him as a brother. And that's actually highly significant here, that word brother in verse 2, on the ground that they are brothers. It's key for how we should think about what the gospel is doing in, with slavery in the ancient world. Paul says that Christian masters and Christian slaves are brothers. That's unusual. The master-slave relationship doesn't trump 1 Timothy 5.1, which Pastor Michael preached on a few weeks ago. Christian masters, therefore, should treat their elderly slaves like fathers and mothers, not tools. And they should treat their male and female slaves like brothers and sisters. They should greet one another with a holy kiss. This is something helpful from Peter Williams' lectures. He notes, the greeting one another with a holy kiss was a shocking, scandalous thing. A master would not kiss his slave. And so to come into the church and have masters and slaves out there, but kissing one another familially like they would their family was massively scandalous in the ancient world. So in other words, Paul's exhortation to slaves in these verses accomplishes two things. Here's what he's doing. On the one hand, it maintains gospel witness in Roman society by encouraging slaves to honor their masters. Like there's no call, rise up, throw off the yoke, start a revolution, none of that. It's be a good slave in where God has planted you. And second, it undermines the oppressive hierarchy by replacing it with the loving bonds of family. There's two things happening here. So from one side, he's reinforcing or stabilizing the existing social order, like be a better slave than anyone else. That's the exhortation. And from the other side, he is fundamentally transforming the social order. You are brothers in Christ. So put another way, what Paul is offering us is a strategy of intentional gradualism that will transform Roman society. Like gospel lands, it leavens the lump of society by encouraging slaves to serve well, but also creates this alternative society, the church, the household of the living God. And in this household, everybody's family. And that strikes at the root of that Greco-Roman social order, but in a gradual, reformational, transformational way, rather than in a violent, revolutionary way. And that passage, this is just one instance of it. It's all over the New Testament. Anytime Paul exhorts Christian masters to treat their slaves well, because you have a master in heaven, he's undermining the Roman social order. Colossians 3, Ephesians 6. When Paul insists that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, he is gradually laying, striking at the root of the Roman social order. It doesn't completely abolish it, but it fundamentally transforms it. Or whenever Paul echoes Christ's command that we love our neighbors as ourselves, masters love your slaves the way you would love yourself. It strikes at the root of the Roman social order. And then, of course, especially in the book of Philemon, where Paul puts pressure, apostolic pressure on Philemon to receive his runaway slave back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Paul and the other New Testament authors 
offer a gospel strategy for renewing all of society, establish the household of God based in the gospel, teach it to everyone and a way of life that accords with it, plan it in a pagan society as an alternative to the worldliness with the goal that the church will eventually transform the whole society as people come to know Jesus and the nations are discipled. Now, here's the thing. That worked. Like, it actually worked. The spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire was a key factor in the ending of slavery in Christian lands. Like, uh, Roman, Rome's decline in military conquest also affected that. There was an economic transition, but theologians like Augustine and Lactantius argued slavery is not a natural institution like Aristotle said. It's a uh, corruption of power. The Christian emperor Justinian revised Roman law so that masters could set their slaves free. So that by the high Middle Ages, slavery was largely eradicated in Christian Europe. Few exceptions, right? In parts of in Africa, it persisted. In Muslim lands, it persisted. In areas of Spain, Portugal, and Italy, which had high degrees of overlap with Islamic slavery, it persisted. But in Northern Europe, Western Europe, it was gone because of the influence of the gospel. So by calling Christian slaves to honor their Christian and non-Christian masters, by insisting that Christian slaves and masters are brothers in the household of God, <clears throat> Paul is giving us an intentional but gradual method of undermining and transforming the institution of slavery as it existed in a pagan society. Now, come back to that tension I mentioned. I've argued I don't think we can draw a sharp dichotomy between benign, easy Roman slavery and brutality of New World slavery. They were both brutal. They both denied legal protections to slaves. Both likely had some masters who were relatively good, treated their slaves well. So the question is this, should the same reformational strategy of intentional gradualism have been applied in the new world? Like, is that what they should have done? Because there are many Christians who argue that way at the time, including Southerners, and there are Christians who argue that way today about the past. They say that's what should have happened. So they see the parallel between Roman slavery and New World slavery, and they say Southern masters should have done what these masters should have done. Slaves should have treated their southern masters well, even if they were Christian or non-Christian, and slavery should have been gradually abolished. Now, here's the thing. I think that parallel, if you were to make that argument, ignores the most significant difference between Paul's day and the situation in the new world, and it's this. Roman slavery was a pagan institution upheld by pagan philosophies that said some men are only fit to be slaves, and it was enforced by pagan laws and pagan rulers. The gospel undermined that pagan institution by introducing that family bond in Christ, and that transformed society and established, and it was eventually established in law by Christian rulers, right? However... New world slavery was reintroduced in a Christian society and regulated and enforced by Christian laws and Christian rulers. Slavery disappeared under the influence of the gospel and was reintroduced by professing Christians. 
and to return to our passage for today. It was done so because of the love of money. When Portuguese and Spanish merchants brought African slaves from African slave traders and took them to Europe, it was that, that when it, they were brought to Europe, that slavery was immediately met with Christian resistance. In fact, it was regarded as a pernicious and dangerous injustice. Countries like France, Belgium, and Holland passed free soil laws. They called them free soil laws. If a slave lands on our soil, he's immediately free. That was the first reaction in the 14 and 1500s. And that attitude persisted until European countries realized the need for a labor force in their new world colonies in South America, North America, Caribbean. The Native American population proved intransigent. Intransigent. They just wouldn't go, they weren't going to do it. And they were decimated by disease brought by the Europeans. And so when faced, this is, this is what happened, when faced with the choice, either we persuade Europeans to travel to the new world and labor in the fields for sugarcane and coffee and cotton and tobacco, or we buy African slaves who were captured by other African tribes and we transport them across the Atlantic and force them to work in our fields, Europe chose the latter because they loved money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what this means then is that that reintroduction of slavery in European society and in New World society, in Christian society, was an undoing of the fruit of the gospel. If the gospel was moving from slavery to freedom, this was a move backward, which means over time, in order to justify this new reintroduction of the practice, Christians had to repaganize their social order. They had to argue that some people, some ethnic groups were only fit to be slaves The desire to be rich led to snares, to many harmful desires. Many people were plunged into ruin and destruction, including abandoning the biblical view of human beings as God's image bearers and Christians as brothers. And as time goes on, that re-paganization hardened into a racial stratification with whites on top and blacks on bottom. So what that means then is that the situation faced by Paul and Timothy in Ephesus in the first century and the situation facing Christians in America in the 18th and 19th century are not the same. Paul looked out at a pagan society and pagan rulers and he said, I want to maintain the stability, but I'm going to undermine it and transform it from the bottom up. American slave owners lived at the ends of the earth in a society that publicly professed Christ, and rather than moving with a sense of gospel urgency to undo the repaganization around them, they accommodated it. They defended it. They rationalized it. They baptized race-based slavery with spurious appeals to Scripture. And hear me here, God hated it. He hated it. When those professing Christians persistently refused to reform and transform slavery into a more just social system, God brought his 
judgment on this nation, and 600,000 people died at their own hands. This country was plunged into ruin, into destruction, and pierced itself with many pangs because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions. There's like lots more questions. There's lots of questions about what, what, what could have been done differently or what, what, what are different kinds of slavery, old world, new world, historical questions about what they should have been doing instead. And, of course, we still have the lingering effects of the repaganization and that racialization of American society because slavery officially ended at the Civil War, but that racial stratification, that repaganization that had been brought in, that lingered, that hardened, that got worse, that spread as Jim Crow spread throughout the country. And the effects of that hierarchy are still with us today. So there's a lot more we've got to talk about. I just want to close and I want to bring it home to us here. Okay, that's past. Now here, going forward, where are we? Here's five brief exhortations. So I've argued that historically, love of money led to a repaganizing of Western society, like it undid the gospel's effects, producing racial stratification and hierarchy. And that took God's good gifts of nations and cultures, and it sorted them and said, some of them are permanently fixed as better and worse based on skin color. That racial stratification did not agree with the sound words of Jesus. It's not a teaching that accords with godliness. And one continuing result of this ungodly framework is a widespread confusion about the meaning of words as well as intractable controversies. This is what we see in our passage, right? The kinds of things that Paul says accompany false teaching. So here's the exhortation. As we're trying to navigate the fallout of racial stratification today, let's beware of the sins Paul lists here. These are really relevant for our day, our church. Let's beware arrogance, conceit, sinful ignorance that makes confident pronouncements about things without actually understanding where people are coming from. Everybody in here has a history with this stuff. Some of us more than others. And so we need to understand and not simply make pronouncements without understanding. Let's beware envy, which often masquerades as concern for fairness and justice. Let's beware of evil suspicion that looks upon our brothers and sisters with a skeptical eye and refuses to give them the benefit of the doubt refuses to believe all things and hope all things for them. Beware of constant friction in our midst. There's a difference between hope-filled, iron-sharpening iron, we are pushing on each other, trying to move into truth and maturity that seeks the good of others, and the suspicious and perpetual chafing and friction that wears each other down and robs us of joy in Christ. So the pressures of our present cultural moment the necessity of loving each other in our life together as a church, our commitment to the gospel and the good of these cities means we have to press in. We have to press into the sound words of Jesus with godliness, humility, hope, not arrogance, ignorance, envy, suspicion. That's exhortation one. Two. These are, the rest are shorter. Sorry. Modern slavery is not the same 
sorry, modern employment is not the same as slavery, but the principles do apply. As a Christian, you ought to show honor to those in authority over you at work. You should be known for your respect and your humility before your non-Christian boss because when you do it, you're living a peaceful and quiet life that commends the name of God and the gospel of Jesus. So at your workplace, here's the exhortation, may it be known that the best workers here are faithful Christians. Consider how you work, how you orient to your superiors there, whether they're good bosses or not. Third, doubly so if they're a Christian. Don't think that your brotherhood in Christ completely obliterates your hierarchy at work. At, at work, we just call them org charts, okay? If you, like, if you don't like the word hierarchy, just think org chart, okay? It doesn't obliterate those. If your boss is a Christian, work hard because he's a believer and you love him. Beware of taking liberties because, well, we're all family. I can do what I want. Number four, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The phrases Paul uses here, desiring to be rich, craving gain and wealth. Heed that warning. See where the path leads to ruin and destruction and falling away from the faith. It can, the love of money can lead you to do unthinkable things. Things that right now you think, I would never do that. Love of money will get you to do them. So beware. Kill it in the cradle. Pastor Jonathan is going to give a positive side of that exhortation. What should we do with money in a few weeks? So stay tuned for that. Finally, here was the most personally challenging bit of this to me. So this is just personal, okay? It was verse 8, actually. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And I just, so food on your table, roof over your head, clothes on my back, godliness in my heart. Are you happy? Are you craving? Do you have a desire for riches? Love of money? So are Am I, that's the question. Am I content? Food and clothing, I'm content. And if I'm honest with myself, no. There's lots of times where I'm not content with that. And it's hard to live in a wealthy society. It's hard to keep luxuries from becoming necessities in our minds. Like that's a really difficult thing to do. And yet Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content. If you have food and clothing and a covering and godliness, you're content. That's my exhortation to me and to you, and that brings us to the table. Here's food. Here's food. No luxury, just simple bread and simple wine. But this food points us to our true covering, to our deepest clothing. It reminds us that Christ is our righteousness, covering our sin, covering our shame, and that he's for us and with us despite our failures. We're We seek to obey the sound words of Jesus and walk in godliness because of what he's done and what this table represents. Because he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took the form of a slave. He went even lower than a slave and died a horrific death on a Roman cross and therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's what we celebrate here at this table. So I want to invite you to come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the pastors to come for the bread. And as we serve it, remember, his body is the true bread. Let's serve you.